Hello and welcome to the Digital Technologies Podcast from the University of Geneva. It's Tsering Gompa speaking and I am joined by my fellow international relations student Chun Yin. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and today we'll be looking at the crossroads of digital technologies, political activism and authoritarian states. Now we know that authoritarian states are using new digital technologies in order to monitor and survey population within the state, but how do they use it for regime preservation to influence outside actors like states or exiled dissidents? And what on earth can we do to strengthen the resilience of exiled activists? To help us answer all those questions and more, we are more than happy to welcome with us today senior researcher in the LSTS research group at Vrije University of Brussels and currently working on DigiAct, uh, which investigates digital surveillance and transnational repression against exiled dissidents and human rights defenders, Marcus Mikkelsen. Hello. Hello, and thanks for having me. Hello, this is Chunin. I'm happy to welcome you, Marcus. So today I'm going to talk with Marcus about how new digital technologies are used as a tool for transnational repression for authoritarian regimes. Marcus, you have developed two concepts with Marlies Glasius to identify what kind of threat we are confronted with in the digital sphere. Can you name these two concepts? For the first one, digital illiberal, and the second one, authoritarian practices. Can you present us what these two concepts are in your research? Yes, okay. Uh, that's an interesting question uh, related <laughs> to our uh, work. Yeah. Um, so we thought, uh, I mean, this work is based on, on uh, a broader theoretical work on authoritarianism that uh, my Uh, colleague and former uh, principal uh, investigator Marlies uh, Glasius has done. Uh, and it started uh, from the idea that uh, usually we uh, see authoritarian governments as uh, confined to a specific uh, territory. So we still have this image of the Berlin Wall or, or the, the Iron Curtain in, in mind. And, and we imagine that these regimes sit behind these walls Uh, and somehow try to restrict ideas from coming in and, and people from uh, moving out. But uh, with globalization, these regimes had to adapt uh, to, mm -hmm. to flows of information, cross-border flows of information and people and, and, and capital uh, to preserve uh, their position. And in the, the domain of, of yeah, digital technologies of the internet, Uh, that is one thing, yeah, where they had to, to somehow find responses to these uh, cross-border flows of uh, information. And therefore, my colleagues uh, had the idea uh, that uh, we should uh, see these regimes no longer as, uh, yeah, regimes sitting in a, in a territory, but rather that authoritarianism is a, is, is a practice, is a practice that is not tied to a territory, uh, mm -hmm. but can also occur um, with the help of, of democracies, of, of private uh, companies, with, with actors in, in other uh, areas outside um, this uh, territory. And, and we said then, yeah, uh, many people are worried nowadays about um, how digital technologies might 
undermine or, or threaten uh, democracy or democratic mm -hmm. processes. But um, these uh, concerns are often quite diffuse and, and mix um, different uh, threats. So we try to, to bring a little bit of order, if you want, in, in mm -hmm. uh, these concerns. And we say that um, there are two types of, of mm -hmm. threats coming from digital technologies to, to the rights of citizens. So one are um, threats challenging our privacy or infringing on our privacy, on our autonomy of, of as individuals. And these are illiberal practices. They threaten uh, human rights, uh, individual rights, fundamental rights. And then the other <clears throat> type of threats are uh, authoritarian practices. So um, practices that undermine uh, processes of accountability, uh, of criticism, so criticism against people who hold some form of power. Um, mm -hmm. And these authoritarian practices try to yeah, silence the voice of people, try to prevent them from having access to, to information. Nowadays, we have a lot of information and news that are circulating through social media. We know that fake news could be used for economic and political purposes. One of the main issues is to distinguish between disinformation and true information. So, what do you suggest in order to have a critical perspective to answer this issue? I think one uh, reason for this uh, proliferation of uh, disinformation is, or, or yeah, fake news or, or false information, whatever we want to call it, uh, is um, the way uh, social media function, uh, because a lot of most people nowadays get their news through uh, social media platforms. And these platforms are uh, constructed in a way to draw users in, to attract their attention and, and to keep them as long as possible on the platform, yes. because they will uh, collect user data on the site uh, mm -hmm. uh, and this uh, somehow uh, gives more or, or how to say um, gives more preference to yeah very emotional um, um, mm -hmm. attractive content that somehow yeah that keeps users on the platform so um, or sensa sensational uh, content uh, that keeps uh, users on on the platform and this is how like objective, um, an objective discussion of news is, uh, yeah, devaluated or, or drowned uh, in in this is more content. So it's uh, if we want to tackle this problem, we'd probably need to somehow think about the position of of social in our current um, news environment. And uh, one way would be probably yeah. Uh, user education, so. Should we avoid social? Well, I was, I'm still the person who grew up with uh, buying a news, printed newspaper every day. <laughs> yeah. Student days and <laughs> find uh, the idea of getting news only on, on through Twitter and, 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 and Facebook uh, still strange and I have, I mean, I go to 
because I want to read only their content. But I, I know from uh, conversations with my with uh, students that uh, this is no longer the case. So yeah, uh, I think it's not about avoiding uh, social media, but developing a, a more conscious approach to the news are spread on new uh, social media and, and what kind of news are spread there and, and how we use ourselves uh, sources to, to inform and educate ourselves about the world and what's going on in the world. Well, as you just said, our digital media usage is being monitored, but for some it is way more dangerous than for others. And you specifically mentioned the case of exiled dissidents of authoritarian regimes in your work. The regime still perceived them as a threat to their legitimacy, and that's why they established ways to silence them from abroad. These so-called transnational repression tactics have existed way before the internet did, and with these offline tactics, there was a clear disadvantage for individual activism. But here's my question. Did or can the digital era change the asymmetry of opportunities for and repressional threats against exiled activists? What we see is that uh, digital media have given these regimes new tools to monitor what is going on outside their country on a larger scale, and then also to come up with responses more quickly. They allow these regimes to spy on and, and monitor activity, and they can threaten people on, on social media. When they learn about uh, something they don't like, what these people are doing, what activists are doing outside, they can also go to their families who are still inside the country and, and threaten them. This happens very often and uh, across different countries and is a very yeah, effective method to, to shut people up because, of course, you, you worry for your parents if they are threatened. So, yeah, this uh, has helped these regimes yeah, to have a greater level of control. But at the same time, activists have greatly benefited from, from digital technologies because they are now able to connect to uh, organizations outside. So, and diaspora organizations can get involved in, in political debates in their home country. Civil society activists can connect to international media and raise attention and awareness about their struggle. Or yeah, if you think about human rights activists, you can document cases on the ground and then uh, bring them to international human rights organizations and thereby increase the pressure on rights violating government. So these tools, yeah, are very necessary for what we call transnational activism, but at the same time, as we have tried to, to point out, they also expose activists to greater risks and create vulnerabilities that these regimes can exploit. Uh, so one way to keep on benefiting uh, from these technologies is certainly yeah, to increase the uh, digital resilience of uh, civil society activists, to reduce their risks, to educate them about how to use these technologies more securely. Another way is, of course, to prevent these, this global proliferation of surveillance technology, of, of this privately marketed uh, spyware tools that governments can buy to spy on activists. This market is hugely unregulated and, and needs to be controlled. Uh, so I think these are the two main points of attack, if you want, uh, to help activists to keep on benefiting from these technologies. 
Now you mentioned strengthening the resilience already, but to be more concrete and as a member of the Tibetan Youth Association in Europe, I have to ask you, um, what can an exiled dissident network concretely do against this digital repression? Yeah, that is very interesting because I think digital threats against or digital attacks against the Tibetan uh, community were one of the first examples to raise researchers' uh, awareness about this phenomenon of digital spying and, and digital attacks. Uh, in our research, we found that activists who are on their own and have to deal with these digital threats individually, they feel uh, quickly overwhelmed and don't know how, how to, to deal with it. But if you create these uh, networks and, and spread information about how to protect yourself when using digital technologies and if you yeah, provide rapid response in, in case of attack, then you can uh, create a better resilience for civil society. So this is one thing. And uh, the other point I think that has been neglected so far is to involve uh, host societies and host uh, governments. So the governments uh, and societies of the countries where these diaspora activists are located, because often the general society doesn't know about what kind of threats these communities experience and that they are maybe infiltrated by spies from the embassy or, or threatened from people from the embassy. And also European governments or, or Western governments need to give a more firm response when countries like in this case it would be uh, china when they yeah infiltrate european territory to suppress legitimate uh, human rights activism thank you marcus finally i have a last question for you a lot of states are using new digital technologies to monitor and survey our behavior do you think that our society are more and more close to what look like this, uh, a word described by uh, George Orwell and Adus Huxley? <laughs> That's an interesting uh, question. But I think um, then I would rather go for uh, Huxley uh, because there's also a difference no, in, be in, in between those two novels. Uh, so in, in Adus Huxley's uh, book, people are more manipulated and, and mm -hmm. nudged into doing something and into avoiding resisting the, the current uh, circumstances. So I think we are more moving towards this direction. Yeah. <laughs> if we, we consider, uh, yeah, the way social media manipulates our daily behavior and, and pushes us towards certain content and we are uh, all somehow addicted to our smartphones, uh, then yes. it's more this manipulation that we are seeing and less this uh, repressive control. Yes. Thank you, Marcus, for, for this interview. Yes. It was uh, very, very interesting. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> and if you found it interesting as well and still want to know more about it, you can always check out Marcus's site. It's called marcusmikhailsen.eu. There's a lot of his research on there and also his contacts. So that's the end of our podcast. We'd like to thank you all for listening. Bye-bye.